You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, March 31st, 2022. I'm Coda Babcock. And I'm Ellie Shannon. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Kira McKinley goes over campus news with updates on ASCSU speaker elections. Then, Ellie Shannon covers local news with details on a Fort Collins City Council announcement that they will be delaying their pick for city manager. Then, Coda Babcock goes over new updates in COVID-19 statistics and policies. Following that, we hear from ASCSU presidential candidates Rob Long and Elijah Sandoval about their campaign. After that, Babcock goes over information on Judge Kentaji Brown-Jackson's nomination and path to Supreme Court confirmation. Then, he speaks to Denver-based attorney Jack Llewellyn about his new true crime novel. After that, Eliza Drotar goes over details on CSU Athletics. To conclude today's show, I explain updates on technology with information on TikTok moderators filing a federal lawsuit. Let's move right into campus and local news. This is Kara McKinley reporting your campus news for Thursday, March 31st. The Associated Students at Colorado State University elections have begun. Voting begins Monday, April 4th and will end Wednesday, April 5th. This year, Robert Long and Elijah Sandoval are running unopposed for ASCSU vice president and president. There are three candidates, though, for Speaker of the Senate, and today we are going to look into these candidates and their platforms. One of the candidates is Rithi Korea, who is a junior at CSU, majoring in computer science and minoring in economics, according to Piper Russell of the Collegian. One of Korea's main goals is to make sure students are heard and that change happens. He said in an interview for CTV that, quote, I have this vision of change where students' voices are heard and the changes that every student wants to make is actually implemented and is not just sidelined. Evan Welch is running for Speaker of the Senate as well. He is a junior majoring in political science and is currently the chair of the University Affairs Committee. He has also been in ASCSU Senate for two years, according to Serena Bedditz of the Collegian. Welch's campaign is centered around community, transparency, and communication, as he finds these to be some of the most important aspects of ASCSU. The other candidate for Speaker of the Senate is Nicholas Del Savo, who is a freshman at CSU, majoring in political science and minoring in legal studies. Del Savo campaigned to be elected into the Pueblo West Metropolitan District Board of Directors when he was 17 years old, making him one of the youngest people to run for public office in the country, said Noah Pasley of the Collegian. Del Savo aims to help ASCSU run more efficiently. He wants to not only listen to students, but really comprehend what they are saying and implement change. For more information, check out the Collegian and CTV's covers of the ASCSU election. To vote for one of these candidates, you can go to RamWeb. Thank you for listening to my CSU campus news updates. I'm Kira McKinley, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU. Here's Ellie Shannon with your local news updates. This is Ellie Shannon with your local news for Thursday, March 31st. Board Lake State Park has already opened to boating this season, but Horsetooth Reservoir and Carter Lake will open their boat ramps tomorrow. The ramp at Horsetooth South Bay Ramp will be open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. daily, starting on Friday. Colorado annual fishing licenses will also be available for purchase starting on Friday. An annual fishing license for residents who are 18 to 64 years and older is $36.71, plus a mandatory $10.59 habitat stamp if it is your first license purchase of the year. Anyone under 16 with a single rod can fish for free, and there are discounted rates for 16 and 17-year-olds. 
Anyone can purchase a license and other passes on the My Colorado Parks and Wildlife app. Fort Collins Utilities is flushing part of its water distribution system in April, which may lead to temporary cloudiness or discoloration of water in the flushing area downtown. According to J.C. Marmaduke of the Coloradoan, the city flushes its water distribution system each year as a preventative maintenance measure. Fire hydrants are opened up and water flows through them at high speeds to clean pipes and remove sediments that could affect water color and taste. If your water is discolored or cloudy, it's just from stirred up sediments, but the water is still safe to drink and use for landscaping. The water may stay in close, and the flushing begins on April 4th. Fort Collins City Council announced they are not picking a new city manager this week, even though the original pick was planned for Tuesday. At a special meeting on Tuesday night, the council announced they are going to pause the search for city manager for another three months. Five finalists were already picked. According to J.C. Marmaduke of the Coloradoan, Mayor Pro Tem Emily Francis read a statement at the meeting stating that it is the best decision for Fort Collins to breathe and reevaluate what is best for the city. The finalists said they supported the decision, and Kelly DiMartino will continue as interim city manager. That's all for local news. This is Ellie Shannon for KCSU on 90.5 FM. We'll be right back. If you are a current CSU student and would like to be a part of KCSU FM, go to kcsufm.com backslash training to be a live DJ, podcaster, or reporter. This is 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. If you missed any part of campus and local news with Kira McKinley and Ellie Shannon, check out our podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to listen back. I'm Coda Babcock, and these are COVID-19 updates for Thursday. Colorado State University reports over 8,200 cases of COVID-19 among students, staff, and faculty at its Fort Collins campus. Just two new cases were reported yesterday, with both being among students. Larimer County reports low community transmission, along with under 78,000 cases of COVID-19 and over 480 deaths. The county's case rate sits at just over 60 cases per 100,000 residents based on weekly data, and only 4% of tests for COVID-19 administered in the county came back positive in the past week. New COVID-19 admissions remain low, and under 1% of inpatient hospital beds are occupied by COVID-19 patients. 
The state of Colorado reports over 1.3 million COVID-19 cases, along with nearly 13,000 deaths. 4.8 million people received testing in the state, 10.3 million vaccine doses have been administered, and nearly 4 million Coloradans are fully vaccinated against COVID-19. Nationally, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports over 79.8 million total cases and over 976,000 deaths due to COVID-19. Hospitalizations, cases, and deaths are all continuing to go down, and now about 82% of eligible people received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. I'm Coda Babcock, and that's all for Thursday's COVID-19 updates. Information from this segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. If you are a student, staff member, or faculty member at CSU, visit covid.colostate.edu to submit vaccine information and get the most recent information on COVID-19 at the university. Robert Long and Elijah Sandoval are running uncontested for the Associated Students of Colorado State University, President and Vice President. Long and Sandoval's campaign focuses on transparency, financial responsibility, mental wellness, and community. Today, I am joined by them, and thank you both for coming in today to discuss your campaign. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. So after looking at your campaign platforms, I saw that you both want there to be more transparency within the Senate. What are other reasons as to why transparency is such a big part of your campaign? As you also mentioned, our campaign values financial responsibility. And transparency and financial responsibility kind of go hand in hand in some ways because, you know, students have the right to know where their uh, money is going towards because I think that the president's budget is $1.3 million. And we feel that, you know, it's the student's rights to know like, oh, hey, you know, here's like $50,000. Here's how it benefited you, you know, and we feel that if we could like send it out, we could send out like an email, we could just put it on our website. Um, really, as long as it's out there, as long as we're being transparent about it, um, I'll call it a success. And we also think that there's a lot in the CSU administration that needs to be a little bit more transparent as well. For example, the conversations that Rob and Joyce McConnell will have as he, when he is president and the conversations that Rob will have with the Board of Governors, we believe that it's something that students deserve to, the right to know about it. The conversations with the Board of Governors are published through a monthly report type of thing, but let's be honest, how many students sit down and and read those? So as Rob said, if it's an email, if it's a social media post, any way to get out there what the conversations are, we would be be successful. Yeah, I'm sure social media is a huge help to that. It very much is. We are very thankful that we live in a day and age where, you know, at at a click of a button, you can find out anything and everything. You can connect with somebody on the other side of the world and hear their story. So that's one way that we want to stay connected is through our social media. What roles did you both play on campus before running for president and vice president for ASCSU? Yeah, so last year I joined the Board of Student Organizational Funding, which basically helped registered student organizations get funding. There's about 450 to 500 registered student organizations here at CSU. I'm also a part of the College of Business Dean Student Leadership Council, which basically represents the College of Business, represents their voices, kind of like, you know, there are constituents, they come to us, for example, like, you know, the Rockwell Courtyard, Rockwell being the College of Business, basically area, you know, the Rockwell Courtyard needs furniture updates. And, you know, they come to us for that type of stuff. 
I mean, we, you know, we represent their values. We represent um, what they want. And then I'm also a part of the Advanced Transportation Fee Advisory Board, which basically takes a certain amount of student dollars. It's around a million dollars, I think, for a budget. And we basically allocate that towards, you know, whether it be buildings or, you know, like a pathway or it's really like an infrastructure board here for CSU. It's a branch of ASCSU as well. But um, but yeah, I sit on that board. I represent the College of Business from there, just represent their values from the College of Business, you know, like fiscal responsibility. And I'm also a senator for the College of Business through ASCSU. And I kind of similar to DSLC, I represent the College of Business's values. I've helped, you know, navigate through fiscal troubles in the past in ASCSU along with the other College of Business senators and really representing, you know, that financial responsibility aspect that's included on our campaign. So I know I sound like I'm representing only the College of Business right now, but I feel like all of CSU could benefit from have their student dollars be in good hands right now. But yeah, that's a little bit about my involvement. And for me, believe it or not, this is my second semester here at CSU. I'm a I'm a transfer student, so I graduated from Red Rocks Community College in Lakewood, Colorado, with my associate's degree in psychology. But being that it's only my second semester here at the university, it has been very difficult for me to find as many organizations to be a part of as Rob, but I'm, you know, part of ASCSU. I'm a senator for the First Generation Collective Board, which is through the AAC. I'm a member of the AAC. I participate a lot with the AAC. I uh, am a first generation student. I'm an adult learner. I am on the student fee review board. So I actually review the student fees. And if student fee areas want a fee increase, then they go through us first. So I can say, yeah, we can increase this area. Or, no, you have too much money. You you are okay. <laughs> Not that we would do that. So far, we pass everything because, you know, we're, we want the school to be successful. We want student fees to be spent responsibly. Most of my leadership experience comes from Red Rocks, not from the university level, unfortunately, but I'm really excited to become vice president and learn about what it means to be an effective leader. Well, it sounds like you both have a lot of experience under your belt. As you're running this campaign, do you think that those experiences that you have before this have helped you? Oh, yeah. I think that the fact that like Rob is a finance major, so he's able to look at numbers. He's able to look at um, logistics. He's able to connect to people that I can't connect to because he has that sense of that logistical sense. You know, he 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 can connect to the school of business way better than I can. But for me, I also feel like I bring to the table connecting with my peers and understanding a lot of different points of view. Yeah. And going along with that, you know, I, you know, I've heard this a lot of places, you know, Elijah and I, we're polar opposites. We, we very much are. <laughs> yeah, we com But we complement each other very well. Like on one side, you know, there's like the day to day logistical, like sort of like, and, you know, the stuff that nobody else wants to exactly. do. Exactly. <laughs> and Elijah is PR, you know, reaching out to people and like communicating. I feel like, you know, our team will be extremely successful because of that. Because we're polar opposites, we work extremely well. It's a very unique, very un like hardly seen opportunity, especially nowadays. But 
Yeah. Saying that you're polar opposites, how did you decide that you wanted to do this together? <laughs> so Rob and I have been, we're senators, like I said, and, you know, we we were always very cordial to each other. We were very like, hi, how are you? How's it going? But we never really connected outside of ASCSU because Rob said we are polar opposites. And so we found out about the elections and, you know, I was thinking about running for speaker, but I was also thinking, you know, why not dive into the deep end and run for president? <laughs> you know, second semester, just finishing up. Let's run for, let's do it. And I was sitting at home and Rob called me and, you know, I'm the person that if I don't recognize a number, I won't answer it. So then he texts me and he's like, hey, it's Rob. I have a question for you. And I'm like, Rob? Rob who? Oh, Rob. Okay. It took a minute to click. <laughs> and... So I called him and I'm like, hey, what's up? And he's like, I, I heard you were thinking about running. And I'm like, oh, goodness, I hope he's not going to talk me out of it. Like, oh, no, what's going on? Like, I'm I'm a very paranoid person, too. And he's like, I was like, yeah, you know, I'm thinking about running for this and this, but I'm not sure because I, I don't have a VP. And he's like, well, I'm running for president. Do you want to be my VP? And I was like, Sure. Why not? Let's do it. <laughs> and um, immediately he's like, OK, yeah, we'll we'll talk about it, but I'll see you later. Click. I'm like, cool. What just happened? <laughs> and now now you're running. <laughs> now I'm running. <laughs> but, you know, honestly, I feel very grateful that he asked me because, you know, we we bring so many different views to the table that we're both able to educate each other. Like I was like, you know, I'm not sure about this. Maybe I should just like dip my toes in Senate leadership first. Universe, give me a sign. What should I do? And then the my phone rings. I'm like, okay, universe, I hear you loud and clear. Let's do it. <laughs> and to the next question I have, which is one of your platforms is about mental wellness. What campus resources will you be working with to help achieve the goal you have in mind? Yeah. So like I said, in the past, I was involved in BSOF and um, one of the resources that we used um, was like, I mean, I mean, actually Senate, that was my first introduction into Senate. And because, um, you know, BSOFT, they they help out registered student organizations and we didn't have many events last year because of COVID. So Alex, the previous chair for it, she was like, you know, what if we just donated it? You know, what if we just like gave, invested it back into the students? I was like, that's interesting, you know, because I thought this organization was just for RSOs. So she pitched this idea project, basically. Are you familiar with what Headspace is? It's like a meditation. Yes. App. Yeah. So it would this bill, it would basically fund a third of all the CSU students fund their bill for a Headspace app, basically. And it basically it went through Senate, but the bill failed because through BSOF, it can only have a certain amount of like, I think it's like $15,000 can be contributed to a certain item, a certain project. So it was ruled unconstitutional by the ASCSU uh, Supreme Court. But, you know, we would like to really start using like the Senate for that. Um, then also, I know Elijah's connected with a few mental health resources here at CSU. So because of my background, I do have, like I said, I have my associates in psychology and 
granted, it's an associate's. It's a two-year degree. Anybody can get an associate's. That does not mean that I'm a, a subject matter expert. However, I am also majoring in sociology and social work, and I do have plans on double mastering in social work and psychology. Because of that background and because of my aspirations and just being very passionate about mental wellness and being mentally ill myself, you know, I'm, I have depression, anxiety, I have learning disabilities. It's something that I really work towards no matter what I'm doing. And I saw that we saw, we both saw, we talked about this. We both saw that the last 18 months prior to coming back, students were in isolation. They were alone. They were in abusive households. And we found that, and there are studies that show that if you are not mentally well, or you are not feeling a hundred percent, it affects not only your physical self, but it affects your mental self. It, it, it affects everything. It, restricts you from studying because if you if you have a bad headache you're not going to want to study you're going to want to go back to sleep if you're feeling weak and tired you're not going to want to write that term paper you're going to want to go back to sleep or scroll on your phone and just do something that does not involve thinking so we thought about that we thought about all of the resources that are on campus with the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, with the um, Counseling Center, Student Disability Center, centers that I'm utilize I work with. Um, and we thought maybe we can use those connections to our benefit and work with them and say, okay, we understand that you are understaffed. Um, we understand that students had to take months, weeks to get in to see somebody. What can we do to support these areas so students don't have to wait? And we realized that talking to these areas. And I'm very thankful that I have connections in these areas because I'm able to reach out and say, hey, what do you need? You know, for the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, the um, victim advocate team, we realize that they need, they are in need of mental health help because they deal with so many heavy stuff. And, you know, sometimes they just can't afford to seek counseling services from the, for themselves. So it's like, okay, is that something that Senate can help with? Is that something that ASCSU can help with? Does that mean raising student fee dollars so we can get those services for you? What does that mean? Same with the um, disability, the Student Disability Center and the Student uh, Counseling Center. We understand that you are understaffed. Okay, what does your ideal staff look like? How many staffs do you have now? And what is it? What do we need to do to get you to that point? How do you both feel about running uncontested? So, yeah, we, we've talked about this in the past. We heard we were running uncontested. And I, you know, I texted Elijah. I was like, you know, how do you feel about this? And, you know, she was like, you know, like, it's not much motivation for us, you know, like, I mean, I'm not saying we're not motivated right now. But like, there's like someone, you know, at the plaza with us, you know, tabling, you know, we'd see like, oh, you know, they're in the same boat as us, you know, we need to, we need to really like fight for this, you know, we need to fight to win. But like, we also feel that heard from somewhere that like, you know, this is a unique opportunity because this is the first time since 2007 where the president and vice president have ran uncontested. So we feel that and I heard that like, this is a good opportunity for you guys, actually. And, and I'm like, well, you can focus on what the students actually want. You can focus on, you know, what the student rather than like, you know, challenging, you know, your competitors ideas, um, start asking students, hey, what do you want out of us? What do you what would you like to see out of us? What ideas do you have? 
so yeah it's kind of two pseudo conflicting ideas right there but i think they both both have been our thought process throughout this whole campaign and if students want to run we say we welcome any student who wants to write in we have both been feeling very i don't want to say disappointed because I understand that each student has something different going on in their lives. But like Rob said, it's very it, it was very unmotivating at first where we were like, well, okay, what's the point in campaigning then? We're going to win anyway because we're the only ones on the ballot. What's the point? And then that's when Rob came to me and said, well, we can still campaign. We can still talk to students and get ideas. And so instead of instead of doing a normal like a tra- or a traditional campaign where we urge students to vote for one group rather than the other instead what we're doing is we're urging students to vote in general and like rob said we're we're able to say statements like when we are in office when we talk when when we reach these goals when we do this when we do that it's not an if statement anymore it's a when and I don't think it's fully sunk in yet that we have the like we're still very much possibly going to be vice president and president. You know, we're still so, uh, some of our yeah. friends like to. The odds are greater than one percent. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some of our friends joke around and they're like, oh, hey, Mr. President. Hey, Madam Vice President. And we're like, not yet. We're not there not yet. yet. <laughs> and every they're like, oh, you're going to win it. And I'm like. You don't know that. You you do not know. We we could lose it. So, you know, I, I like to think of John F. Kennedy was losing before he came on TV. And then all of a sudden he skyrocketed. You know, John F. Kennedy was the one that was said to gonna, going to lose. And then something turned around and he won his presidency. So something can happen with us, you know, and we welcome any student who wants to write in and because we think it's a really great opportunity. And that's why it's important to vote for ASCSU president and vice president. The elections open on April 4th and go through April 6th. All graduating seniors and grad students can also vote. This is Ellie Shannon for KCSU on 90.5 FM, and we'll be right back. listening to the same three songs anymore take out your phone and let me put you on to something different 
which is KCSU. The student-run radio station at CSU makes it easy. They're on the TuneIn app, or you can stream them live on kcsufm.com and browse some of their articles or podcasts. What if my phone is from ninth grade? Can I still get TuneIn? You can find TuneIn on Google Play or the App Store. Put some variety on your playlist, only at KCSU. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock for KCSU News, and this is National News for Thursday. Judge Kentaji Brown-Jackson received support from Republican Susan Collins. Mary-Claire Jelonek from the Associated Press reports that with at least one Republican senator supporting her confirmation, Brown is likely to be the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. The Maine senator confirmed her intentions to vote in favor of Jackson Wednesday, saying, quote, She possesses the experience, qualifications, and integrity to serve as an associate justice on the Supreme Court. I will, therefore, vote to confirm her to this position, end quote. The Senate is currently divided 50-50, meaning that Collins' support gives them one additional vote needed for a majority, preventing the need for the vice president to offer a tie-breaking vote. Arizona Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema still has not said how she will vote, with Sinema often taking the same approach as Collins and another moderate senator, Joe Manchin. The Senate Judiciary Committee vote is expected to begin Monday, with Jackson being confirmed by late next week. Oregon physicians can now provide medically-assisted death to terminally ill patients regardless of in-state residence. Deepa Shivaram from National Public Radio reports that a settlement was reached in a federal lawsuit which said that rejecting a patient based on residence violates the state's Death with Dignity Act and the U.S. Constitution. Compassion and Choices worked with Dr. Nicholas Gideons in suing the state, with an attorney from the organization saying to AP News, quote, This requirement was both discriminatory and profoundly unfair to dying patients at the most critical time of their life. End quote. Following the end of the residency requirement, Gideons says his patients traveling from Washington State felt a huge relief being able to make end-of-care life decisions. The Federal Bureau of Investigation is investigating threats made against those handling the case of a kidnapping plot against Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Brendan O'Brien from Reuters reports that the agency searched a suburban home as part of the investigation, with the FBI confirming the action Wednesday. Four men were connected to a kidnapping plot where they planned to kidnap Whitmer, and people involved in the trial were threatened due to its high-profile nature. The FBI says they do not expect the investigation to heavily impact the prosecution. Threats were made against U.S. District Judge Robert Junker, the presiding judge in the trial. Additionally, defense lawyers Josh Blanchard and Christopher Gibbons experienced threats based on their status in the trial. President Joe Biden is expected to end the emergency Title 42 border expulsion policy in May, which allowed for quick deportations to prevent COVID-19 outbreaks in detention facilities holding asylum seekers and other immigrants. Camila Montoya Galvez and Ed O'Keefe from CBS News report that Title 42 was a directive put into place in part by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and it resulted in over 1.7 million migrants being expelled from the U.S. in two years. The CDC was tasked with reviewing the need and efficacy of Title 42 every two months since August, with CDC spokesperson Kristen Nordland saying that the agency would release additional information on the findings of their last review this week. Biden's decision to gradually discontinue plans to expel migrants will start in May. The plan was originally started under the Trump administration in March 2020. That's all for National News. I'm Coda Babcock for KCSU News. And now we're going to be hearing from local author Jack Llewellyn about his book, Someone Had to Die. Today we're joined by Jack Llewellyn, a local author and the managing attorney of Dickie, McCamie, and Chilcote. In his book, Someone Had to Die, he explores a 1985 murder case through the eyes of a fictional lawyer, James Butler. The book was released this month. 
and he has looked into the case for 35 years, investigating a variety of details and challenging narratives. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So before we get started, could you explain a little bit about what pushed you to write this book? Yeah, so got to go go all the way back to about 1990 and, and maybe even a little bit before that. It's not a simple answer. Agent Camarena was killed in Guadalajara in 1985. And there, through a series of events, there ended up being some um, criminal trials in the United States. One of those was in 1990 in Los Angeles. And as it turned out, I was a summer associate at that law firm in Los Angeles in 1990. And kind of by happenstance, I ended up working on the case. And little did I know I'd work on it. I'd work on that case relatively full time for the next several years, worked on it through the 90s and kept working on it until today. All right. And then this book really focuses on how James Butler can't get past the thought that investigators are missing something in this case. As you worked on it personally, do you think that you really experienced this feeling of something's missing just like the character? Yeah. And a couple of things happened. So there were actually two trials that we worked on. We were representing somebody by the name of Ruben Zuno Arce, who was a homeowner and he owned the home um, at one time, the home where Cameron was taken to and interrogated and ended up being killed. He was also the brother-in-law of the former president of Mexico. So we had one trial we lost, got it reversed because of some prosecutorial misconduct. We had a second trial and the interesting thing is the government's case in the first trial was completely different than the government's case in the second trial. New witnesses, new theories, new everything. And it just really was one of those things where nothing seemed to quite fit. Every time you turned the corner, you know, there was something that didn't quite make sense. And then in the last few years, you know, there was the series Narcos Mexico on Netflix, which kind of got me thinking about it for 20 years. Every time I moved, I'd move boxes of documents for no real apparent reason and started pulling them out. And then there was a an Amazon Prime documentary called The Last Narc, where a former DE agent made some pretty, pretty amazing allegations with respect to the case. And that's when I really decided, all right, I'm going to try to answer some of these questions. And, you know, I think you end up at the point, and I say this in the book, you're never going to know exactly what happened. You're not going to know all the truth, but you also can figure out what isn't true. And sometimes that's as important as knowing exactly what happened. All right. And then as you brought up the Netflix series, Narcos Mexico discusses the case along with that Amazon Prime piece. And when you wrote a letter to KCSU, you said that this story really counters many of the commonly accepted theories in that show, as well as kind of this idea of dramatizing a true crime. So how do you think that the character of James Butler helps to remind people that there are always these unknowns in any murder or disappearance case? You know, especially, you know, in this case, it, it's always going to be, be the case. You know, humans don't necessarily act in perfect rationality, you know. And so you can have, you know, whether it's in economics or political science or psychology, you know, you sit down and you go, okay, you know, this person in this situation really should have done this. And they don't always act that way. And so there are also there are times when, you know, you're just not going to understand what the right motivation was. The other thing that really came up in this case is, you know, it was, it was 1985. So the story's been told several times. And I think every time somebody wants to tell the story, whether they're, you know, doing a dramatic 
you know, giving dramatic license to it, as in Narcos Mexico, or whether they're trying to, you know, be a little bit more fact-based, let's say, there's always an incentive to add something to the last version. And, you know, it's almost the the telephone or the people talking around the, the fire. You know, the first one starts, and by the time it gets to the last one, it's different. And as you keep expanding, the, the story changes. And, and the other thing that I think we explored in this book is the idea that sometimes things are a lot simpler than you think they are. You know, sometimes it's easy to start looking for lots of lots of angles, lots of twists. Well, what about this? What about this? And when you step up back and go, well, maybe it's really a whole lot simpler than it is. And, and uh, you know, one part in the book, somebody says, you know, maybe the story is there isn't any story. Uh, and I, I think that probably comes up a lot, too. All right. And then while this book is a work of fiction, you highlight that it really features investigations and interviews with facts that have never been published before. So how do you think that your story walks the line between fiction and nonfiction? The way I describe it is it uses a fictional narrative to present facts. Um, and it uses that fictional narrative to put some type of academic rigor to some of the allegations of other people and to really take a, an opportunity to look at it and, and analyze them and scrutinize them compare them to the evidence that that I have and you know sometimes come up with an answer sometimes not but to do it in a little bit more of an interesting way than just you know another nonfiction on the shelf definitely and then how do you think that publishing this fictionalized account of a true crime story has really brought attention kind of to how much Hollywood over dramatizes the truth well it's interesting I had somebody text me this morning so I you know, I put it out. I've sent it to, to some friends and stuff. And one of the friends that I sent it to very early on was somebody who knew Agent Camarena. And he wrote back in this morning and said that it's getting some a good reception amongst former DEA agents who are happy to see the truth come out. And, and so that's been good. And, and I think, again, you know, I didn't set out necessarily to say anybody was, you know, lying or anything else, but just to say that, you know, you can't just say X, you know, without having some analysis to it. Some, and, and I think what's so easy to do is whether it's in a movie or a TV series is just to make allegations and to say things as if they're true. And people assume they are because, you know, God, it's on Netflix. How could it not be true? Um, and, and I think that, you know, part of my goal was just to, to rein that back in a little bit and say, you know, you really have to be able to sift through the fact and the fiction. Do you feel like in some ways you kind of took on the scientific method of making a hypothesis and finding those ways to prove it as you went to set out and really look at those analyses rather than taking allegation as fact? I, I think that's a, a, a great way of putting it. And I really did try to, and, and that's part of the, the process of having a couple of different characters or, you know, who are trying to figure out this case together. And so what you get is a little bit of the back and forth in the dialogue of well, what about this? Well, what about this? And to, to again, you know, I, I just wanted to find, find something that I thought was true. I didn't really care what the answer was, at least to start with. And when you start looking at, at facts and looking at claims and putting them together, you, the picture started to come together more quickly than I thought. 
And then you also, as we mentioned earlier, work as an energy law-focused attorney. So what was it really like moving between your day-to-day work and your novel? As I know that that can be really complicated as you balance both of those. It was interesting. Um, Yeah, I will say um, the pandemic helped that a little bit. It was easier to it was easier to write when you couldn't do anything, go anywhere, you know, and someone's really trying to, to be focused and to set aside, you know, okay, Saturday morning from eight to noon, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write. And I'm, you know, and the good thing was when I actually sat down to write, I had, I had 35 years of background. So it, it actually started to flow fairly well. I can say there were days when work was more fun than writing. And there were days when writing was more fun than work. So but balancing was 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 a little bit of a challenge. All right, and then what are some of the decisions that you made as a writer that you think really helped make the story so relevant to the present day when we're looking at true crime pretty frequently and people have dedicated entire blogs and, and podcasts and are obsessed with true crime? I think that um, the, the decision early on to make it fictional or to have a fictional element to it was important because I think it, it it allows more people to relate to it and understand it. And I think the biggest thing for me was to trust the reader. You know, there's, there's, I've got 35 years of background. I can talk about this case for days. And, and, and obviously I didn't try to regurgitate all of that in the book, but I also didn't try, I didn't dumb it down, you know? And so we tried to be step-by-step and methodical but give your audience credit for being able to follow a complicated story, for being able to, uh, you know, follow the, as you say, the scientific method and then come to conclusions of their own. And, you know, if at the end of the day, somebody walks away and said, you know, God, that was a good book. I really enjoyed reading it. I think Llewellyn is completely wrong. I'm okay with that. All right. And then what do you think you would tell someone who's preparing to start kind of a realistic fiction work of their own and is kind of nervous about being able to trust their audience and being able to really get the book out, not stop and just stay dedicated? The hardest thing for a writer to do is just write. And and I kind of fell back to something that Hemingway said, said, and I'll clean it up slightly. But he says, your first draft is crap because everybody's first draft is crap. And so you know, and, and I found this in my professional life too. Sometimes just get stuff on paper, you know, do your homework, do your research, know what you want to say, and then just get it on paper and you'd be surprised how quickly it, it comes. And then, you know, figure out what works for you. I, it was really good for me to have a basement where I could come down and say, okay, you know, I'm down here for this amount of time, but figure out what works for you and just get it done. Just do it. All right. Do you have anything else you want to add? No, I really appreciate the the opportunity to talk. I've I've expanded this into a, a podcast, which kind of follows the case a little bit more, and and I'm actually working on the second James Butler mystery. So, what's the name of that podcast? It's called Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. All right, and then your book can be found at Barnes and Noble, correct? Yep. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I really appreciate it.
My name is Eliza Drotar. This is your RMR Sports Report. In women's softball, the team is 11-16, and 16, winning all three games against San Jose State this weekend. Their next three games are at home against Utah State starting Friday. In track and field, the teams took part in the Spank Blazing Invitational, their spring season opener. Congrats to the first-place finishers Lauren Offerman, Jessica Oze, Jalen Jasper, Yolanda Johnson, Gabby McDonald, Michaela Hawkins, Morgan Stewart, Lexi Keller, Michaela Williams, and all the other podium finishers. In women's golf, the team placed 11th in the Clover Cup, and in men's golf, they tied for 12th in the National Invitational Tournament. In women's tennis, the team has lost their last three matches against ranked teams, including Fresno State, and their next match will be against Air Force this weekend, along with New Mexico State. If you are interested in student tickets, go to csurams.evenue.net to get your tickets for upcoming volleyball games and more. My name is Eliza Drotard. This has been your RMR Sports Report. This is Ellie Shannon with your tech news. Dyson is best known for their vacuum cleaners, but they are now diversifying their products as Dyson unveils their new headphones. The headphones are designed to tackle air pollution and have an air vacuum for the mouth. The noise-canceling headphones, called the Dyson Zone, come with a motor, fan, and air filters in each cup, according to Jane Wakefield of BBC News. Dyson Zone will have four purification modes that will channel purified air to the nose and mouth via a visor that magnetically attaches to the bottom of the headphones. The Dyson Zone will be released sometime in the fall. Two former TikTok moderators have filed a federal lawsuit seeking class action status against the video sharing app and its parent company, ByteDance. According to Bobby Allen of NPR News, Reese Young and Ashley Velez were told they'd be reviewing sensitive video content to protect children on the app. Instead, Young and Velez had to view extremely graphic and violent videos. Their lawsuit accuses the app of negligence and breaking California labor laws by not protecting them from emotional trauma. A similar suit against TikTok was filed in December on behalf of another moderator, but was ultimately dropped. That's all for Tech News. I'm Ellie Shannon for KCSU on 90.5 FM. Today was mostly sunny with a high of 61 degrees and a low of 37 degrees. Friday will be warm, but partly cloudy with a high of 58 and a low of 31. Saturday, you can expect mostly sunny skies with a high of 66 and a low of 41. Moving into next week, Sunday cools down to a high of 59 with a low of 35. Monday will be about the same, and Tuesday you can expect partly cloudy skies with a high of 58 and a low of 32. And for Wednesday, tune in from 4 to 5 in the afternoon on Tuesday for our next episode of the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Cutta Babcock for KCSU News, and information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, David Demuth, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Bryn McCall, Jack Balsley, London Shell, Hannah Hitchcock, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Bridget Bandel, Eliza Droder, Dylan King, 
Michelle Ellis, Ben Haney, Ben Kruger, Anna Schwabi, Marie Tanksley, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Allie. And we finally couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. Thank you.